everyone. Welcome to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast that you're particularly fond of wildlife and wild places. I myself track animals on the weekends in the Rockies and visit as many biodiversity-rich countries as my schedule and wallet allow. But As I've gone along my journey, and I'm sure many of you have had this same realization, conservation isn't about nature. It's about people. We all know how difficult people can be to work with. Let's be honest, that's why a lot of us went into nature careers in the first place. However, having a passion for nature isn't enough anymore. We must learn how to work with people. So what do good old conservationists like us do when we want to foster long-term change in communities for the betterment of nature? Today, we are going to learn just that. In this episode, I'm chatting with Kayla Cranston, PhD, Director of Conservation Psychology, Strategy, and Integration at Antioch University, New England. Kayla is a master at creating long-term conservation engagement using psychology. She shares so many of her discoveries, the tools she uses when developing conservation strategies in communities, and so much more. If you're working on your master's, PhD, or are at a conservation organization, you cannot miss this episode. Kayla might give you a nugget that could completely change the trajectory of your work. Be sure to listen until the end of the episode to hear this week's question. Feel free to chat about your thoughts on Instagram at Rewildology or in the Rewildologist Facebook group. All right, friends, on to my conversation with Kayla. Well, thank you, Kayla, so much for coming on Rewildology today. Cannot wait to dive deep into your story. But first, before we get to today and all Mm -hmm. of the amazing stuff that you're doing and pioneering through, you have... An unbelievably amazing resume. Like I looked at it, girl, it is great. But but obviously you didn't get to today out of nowhere. So let's go back in time. What was your childhood like? What were some of the big life events that happened to bring you to what you're doing? Yeah, that's a good question, Brooke. One I've not been asked many places before. So thank you for asking. So uh, I can say that I, I grew up kind of regular white bread America. I'm a white girl from Arizona, you know, like just kind of um, your, your normal uh, middle class family type in the United States. And in that situation, I mean, you know, I had a little bit of a rough childhood. And so I remember thinking um, as I was growing up, you know, what's really predictable animal behavior. (laughs) And so I fell in love with animals because they were honestly easily, their behavior was very easy to predict. (laughs) And and it's so interesting the way that it turned out that I now am studying human behavior. But it's like your life has come full circle. Yeah, because it started with my love for animals. I mean, dogs, I was, I would train when I was a kid (laughs) just for fun and chickens we had chickens so i'd watch them and just in in general animal behavior and as i was i was as i grew older that kind of interest turned more into a passion to to protect them i also noticed that you know sometimes you know animals don't have voices and so sometimes they're treating treated in ways that 
are not ideal and I wanted to to help save the animals right like that was the main the main goal I think probably in high school and then in high school I was wildly lucky I did go to public school but I had this amazing science teacher named Mr. Eberly who was just so fantastic and he offered us um, opportunities to travel abroad with him and his wife who was also a teacher to go to different conservation sites. One in, in Australia I went to in, uh, when I was in high school, one in, um, one in Hawaii, one in, in California, like a couple of different places with him as our biology teacher, right? Like he was teaching us something that he called conservation biology, which I didn't know existed at the time. And it was all about saving animals. And I was super stoked about that. And so I started learning about conservation and what it meant and how it was aligned with my interest in saving animals <laughs> um, early, early on. And he is the one that introduced me to uh, Jane Goodall. And she became my idol almost immediately, as many, I'm sure, of your, your audience members might have as, as white women growing up who want to be environmentalists in the future. Jane Goodall's this huge influence, right? Um, and so I, I kind of looked at what she was doing and saw kind of international conservation as something that was like the, the, the prime example of what I wanted to do. Because that was the type of conservation that I was introduced to early, early on, not domestic conservation, like abroad, like the wildlife is over there and we have to go over there to protect it, right? Like that is um, my white middle-class upbringing. Like that is what you're taught here, right? In, yes, in biology. Actually. It's so true. It's mm -hmm. so true. And so, um, you know, that is kind of where it all began for me. And then college went on from there. I can tell you that story or we can stop. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And and you don't have to answer this question at all, but maybe just to help us put more pieces together, would mm -hmm. you mind or be comfortable sharing some of the things that happened in your childhood that was that pushed you to go more towards animals than maybe people? Yeah. Humans were in my life not exactly the um the stable type. <laughs> Let's just put it that way, um, you know, and and it was one of those things where I, I think as a kid growing up in that kind of situation, trying to look for anything that was stable was a necessity for survival. Mm. And so as a necessity for survival, I, I became really close with animals. I ended up liking hanging out with them way more than humans, right? They were predictable. That is what I remember feeling most safe with is, you know animals they were predictable and they were great um external i guess the way that i see it now as, is as kind of external i don't know what the word is i suppose um they're comfort right comfort animals kind of so pets things like dogs and cats and bunnies and chickens even but they are really steady at least they were when i was a kid and so I relied on that uh, to kind of get me through a less than ideal childhood <laughs> at home life, right? Um, yeah. And moving forward, you know, just having the want to save the animals. Um, and then, of course, full circle coming back to what that meant for perhaps people not like me, but maybe in, in similar situations where they felt a little less 
uh, a little more disenfranchised. I mean, I wouldn't have used that word as a kid, but, you know, disempowered, uh, you know, and what this world can do for, for people that feel that way at the same time as saving animals or, or conserving wildlife, right? Like, so how can we do both is really where I ended up. And it came from the beginning of me needing to be you know, secure and safe and seeing the animals as, as a, a resource for that. Wow. So everything really did come full circle, <laughs> but we're not yeah. even to, we're not even to today yet. So, okay. So we had these amazing study abroad experiences with this teacher that showed you what conservation biology was. So I would imagine then the next organic step would be for college to probably go into something similar. So what was the next step in your journey for you? So the next step in the journey for me really was moving into uh, college at Arizona State University. Got a scholarship on my way. Here I go. Um, and I became a conservation biology major. And Brooke, it turns out <laughs> that in conservation biology, you have to be super good at chemistry, which I could not pass for the life of me. Like I wanted so hard to be a scientist, uh, uh, you know, a natural scientist, uh, whatever, physical scientist, could not hack it. God bless those who can. Um, but you know what I really was good at, and probably because of my early experience with an unstable family, <laughs> I was really good at reading human behavior. Like it just mm. was something that I was naturally inclined to do. And so I found myself after quite a lot of turmoil, ending up as a psychology major. And at the time it felt as though I was taking a cop out. It felt as though I was giving up my dream of, of really helping to save wildlife, right? Like that to at the time did. Um, and I will tell you that that could have, couldn't be farther from what the truth had ended up being. Um, it was a detour that ended up being exactly what I needed. And so during that time, while I was doing the psychology, I also wanted to keep that passion alive for conservation of wildlife. And so in my sophomore year, oh my God, I think it was 19. Goodness gracious. I can't remember what year that was, but I was 19 years old and I went on a trip. Um, you know, those, those companies that do like volunteer, it's almost like, what do you call it? Volunteerism? Yeah. Volunteerism. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there were, there were, you know, companies that would come to the college and like present to students as like, this is a thing you can do. And I saw it at the time as no different than the awesome trips that my teacher in high school took us on. Right. And so it was like, I want to do that again. Let's, let's continue doing that. It's been a while since I've been focused on conservation. So I signed up for this <laughs> unbeknownst to me, um, a little colonialistic approach to conservation um, internationally. And, and basically the, the, the kind of outline was, right, that you white Americans will, will sign up and spend thousands of dollars on a trip that will take you to a foreign country where you will do a homestay for two weeks with a community that you are, whose, whose behavior you're essentially trying to change for, for conservation for the sake of conservation of something. And in this case, it was sea turtle conservation in Costa Rica, a sp specifically an area called Viandoca, um, which is right near Panama, it's this whole thing. So it's a beautiful black sand beach. And mm -hmm. they, the idea is that you go for two weeks to do the work and then you do two weeks of tourism. 
on top of that, right? So I went for the first two weeks and in a, and so we were there and our job was literally as 19 year old white people was to go into this community of people who had been around for centuries, right? Like just have been there forever and have lived a subsistence lifestyle off of harvesting sea turtle eggs and, and um, whatnot. Well, all of a sudden, right, um, these sea turtles are becoming less and less frequent, uh, endangered, and, you know, may or may not have anything to do with the, with the actual behavior of the people that live there, have more to do with things like climate change and, and really horrible things that are going on in our world that have nothing to do with the subsistence lifestyle of the people that lived in Gendoka. However, guess what our job was? <laughs> our job I, I shit you not, was to patrol the black sand beaches 24 hours a day for poachers that were from the community. So we were legit staying in the homes of the people who we were trying to protect the sea turtles from. Does that just Ooh. sound like a bad, like a recipe for disaster to you? Because <laughs> it was. Even still, I mean, how long did I that project even last? Like... <laughs> I, I, don't, rebelled. I, I don't, I mean, the thing is, is that they do rebel, right? They do, but they do it in ways, and this is what I learned later, that are not obviously the ways that perhaps us Americans would rebel, right? So instead of standing up and saying, get the hell out of my community, what did they do? They, and by they, I mean some one or two individuals in their community, they, they stole all of my stuff. And it wasn't just me, like, <laughs> it was a large, large number of us. And so I ended up in the, in the unfortunate situation of being in this, you know, small town in the middle of nowhere, Gandoka, Costa Rica, with no passport, no credit cards, no anything, like nothing, like they took everything. And it was, it, and I was 19 and stupid, right? So I didn't know how to travel internationally with like watching my back, like that wasn't a thing. And they know that. So, so instead of protesting, um, they took the company's money. And then of course, the, the, um, one of the ways that, that historically disenfranchised people really stand up for themselves is by dragging their feet or, or protesting in some way that is perhaps less obvious to, um, uh, you know, traditionally American ways of standing up for yourself. They get it done though. And I'll tell you what stopped the minute that happened, the Black Sand Beach Patrol, that's what stopped because they had to come in, do an audit. It was a whole thing, right? So there I am in Gandoka um, visiting the embassy every day for the rest of the month that I was there because I couldn't go back home without a passport. And I had a lot of time to think about what had happened and a lot of time to get really angry at things that my 19-year-old brain couldn't fully wrap itself around that I later found out, oh no, <laughs> like I'm just glad at this point that all that happened was that my passport and credit cards were stolen, right? Because of the, the magnitude of the audacity <laughs> that, my, that myself and my fellow travelers uh, had to come into to a community like that and say, you're the problem. Yours is the behavior that needs to change, not anyone else's. Um, not ours, for God's sakes, right? So that kind of got me thinking about this international conservation thing in a different light. 
Um, and I remember being on my, on a high horse coming home once I finally got home of I'm just so glad <laughs> that we as Americans aren't like that, right? That we mm. don't slaughter whatever it is. And I remember thinking to like, you gotta be kidding me. Like later on looking back on, on how I felt about the situation as of course I'm driving home from the airport and they're like hummers like going by and you know, I'm in the middle of a, a ridiculous city that, that spends way too much on agriculture. But regardless, it's, it was a moment for me of, of just like, well, that didn't work out, why? And it was again, an unexpected thing, right? Unpredictable behavior. And it just, I needed to know why. Mm. And so I finished up my, my bachelor's in psychology, really focusing on behavioral and social psychology. What made people tick? What made people do the things they do? Things like this, right? Like that was my, that was my secondary, I wouldn't say it was a passion at the time. At the time, it was just a skill set. I was good at it and I was interested in it. Um, my passion was still conservation. And so in uh, 2009, I believe, when I, nope, 2007, and when I had the opportunity to, to go and get my master's, I studied um, something called sustainable community development, because I wow. started to see that there was a connection between human psychology and environmental conservation. And I knew that it also had to be nested in community. And I wanted to know, how do you do it better? Right, I had just experienced this whole thing in college about how to do it the wrong, <laughs> wrong. way, wrong, wrong, wrong in so super many ways. Wrong. It is super wrong. <laughs> and instead of writing a thesis on why it was so wrong, instead I wanted to find a way to create a plan to develop a sustainable community. Like, how would you do that? Um, and I found out a lot, but the way that I did it was applying my psycho psychological background, principles of social and behavioral psychology, to the development of a sustainable community. Um, yeah, the, the plan for the development of a sustainable community. And um, I was very proud of myself, Brooke. <laughs> I Good. thought I had, I, 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 I shit you not, I thought, God, I was so cute. I thought <laughs> I had created a, a whole ass field. Brooke, I really did. I was like, oh my God, I don't know what this is called, but I've just created it and I'm brilliant and yada, yada. Then I Googled and it turns out that the term conservation psychology already existed and had for many years. And since 2003, actually, when, when uh, a woman named Carol Saunders, co who was a co-founder of the field, pinned an article in Human Ecology that defined what it meant to study these reciprocal relationships between human and nature with specifically an eye to not just knowing what's going on, right? Like not just understanding that relationship, but a specific eye towards fostering behavior that would support the mission of conservation and specifically biodiversity conservation. And so, oh my God, right? I was blown away. Like, holy crap, I just did like two years worth of work in a, in a field I didn't even know existed. This is amazing. <laughs> wow. And, and so in my one-time Google situation, apparently, uh, I, I found where Carol was. And I uh, found out that she was at Antioch University of New England. She had just moved there from Brookfield Zoo. Um, and she was looking for students. And so that's how I found my doctorate program mm. at Antioch. Wow. And yeah. And I went there. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. Okay. So sounds like you have now found your dream mentor. You're like mm -hmm. freaking the, like the sky parted, the sun rays came down on you. Conservation right. psychology is your thing. You've been working in it. And you didn't even know it. And here is your amazing mentor. So then what happened from there? So did you email her? Like, please let me be your student. <laughs> like, how did that go? And then what did you end up studying with her? Right. So the way that it went was, oh gosh, she's such a humble woman. Um, mm -hmm. So Carol passed a couple of years ago. And, and since then, and we'll get to this, I've been working to continue her legacy. So it's interesting to think back about the time that I first connected with her. And I remember thinking at the time, and this has been the case for all of my mentors across my entire academic career. I go, I, I, I gravitate towards mentors who are saying what I'm thinking, but in a better dialect. So they're saying it better than I could think it. Right. But it's the same thought. It's just they're saying it way better than I could. Right. Like they've got the words that I just I've got nothing. And but I but I believe them. And then that's how I feel like, thank God, somebody is saying it in the articulate way that they are. And so Carol, for me at that time in my life, was that woman. And I called her. I was an admissions counselor at, at a Prescott College at the time. And I called her and I, I explained myself. And it turned out that she had a very similar background to mine. She loved animal behavior, you know, had her, her background in psychology and, and behavioral biology. And, um, and she studied in Africa, right? So I'm like, oh my gosh, it's all happening. I'm going to be Jane Goodall, right? Really excited. <laughs> and so um, she, she mentioned to me while I was on the phone with her that she just, you know, a year ago had gotten to Antioch and that she herself was setting up something called a Conservation Psychology Institute at Antioch and she would love my help. And so that's how I did it. I moved to Keene, New Hampshire to be her right-hand person as she and her team there set up the Conservation Psychology Institute. Um, and that wow. was my in. I mean, it wasn't a lot of money that I was getting paid to do it, but just <laughs> the experience and the development of the relationships that happened out of that have to this day been absolutely invaluable. Was that one of the best phone calls of your life? I'm just seeing me as yeah. Kayla, like, yeah. I would have been running around in laps, like yeah. in a freaking poodle. Just yeah. Ah! Yeah. I think it was, it was one of my first of many experiences with people. It felt like serendipity because mm. they needed something at the same time that I did and our needs and wants kind of collided. And it also was the first time of many times that I would have had since then where people who have every single right to be completely full of themselves because of what they've done for this world are completely humble and just, just grateful <laughs> that you're interested in what they're interested in. Like we're all nerds, right? Like let's just nerd out on this. So yeah, it was a great conversation. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now, now, now we got to go to what's next here. Mm -hmm. um, but before we do so that we have actual context of what conservation psychology is, mm -hmm. could you define it in your own words and then really go into like, what you, what did you end up studying? Like, how are you a conservation psychologist? What, what was your PhD about all of that? So mm -hmm. maybe give us a little bit more background because it is a relatively new thing. People yeah. have heard conservation, 
but not necessarily conservation psychology, which I love this subject, which is why I'm so glad we're talking. So what is it and what do you study in it? Yeah, yeah. Good question. Um, and I'm going to try to be succinct here because I could go on and on. But the field of conservation psychology, I mean, first of all, you've already had somebody on your podcast, Kathayan Cahill, who is an expert in conservation psychology. And I believe the title of, of that podcast was uh, Human Behavior is the Problem or something like that. The conservation like that. is a people problem. Yes, uh-huh. conservation is a people problem, right? Mm-hmm. Which kind of indicates that, that that's all that it is, right? That we are we are the problem. Our behavior is the problem, which is so true. Um, You know, that is true. And it's a large part of what conservation psychology is about, is identifying exactly what those behaviors are so that we can change them, yada, yada, right? The other part of conservation psychology is learning all about how you can make those connections stronger and really motivate humans to do behavior that goes in the opposite direction, (laughs) right? So that not only are people the problem, but people are also the solution. And if you can get your mind around what we know about human psychology, right? For the last 60, 70 years, we have studied the human mind. There's a lot to know about why we do the things that we do. And if you can take all of that and apply it towards the mission of biodiversity conservation and getting people in line with with what is is sustainable and harmonious with nature like why not like what a great what a great uh, goal to have with all of that knowledge combined put it together and put it towards understanding and changing human behavior towards conservation so that's what conservation psychology is to me in my own words <laughs> But that's the most important. I want I yeah. want to know what it is because I mean anyone could Google it. What is conservation psychology? Right, but it's right. like, but what is it to you? No, right. I love that. I, it is. It is both. It's both sides. We mm-hmm. are the problem, but we are also the solution. That's right. Because we have to be. That's right. <laughs> like, that's right. We have to be. But okay, 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 okay. So now you're at this university with this amazing new mentor. What did you study for your doctorate? And I'm assuming it was directly in line with this amazing new mentor of yours. You would think, Brooke. You really oh. would. Oh, I think. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> well, uh, no. I mean, in, in in a lot of ways, it was. She's a pioneer. Was a pioneer in her field. Um, conservation psychology is my jam. Always will be, and always has been. And her, her research, her personal research was way more in line with Kathy Yoon's research on empathy than it was with what I ended up focusing on. And that right there is the marker of an amazing mentor that they can, they can show you the way, introduce you to the people and, and really give you the skills you need to identify what your own passion is and to go after it. And that is exactly what Carol did for me. And I ended up focusing less on empathy and more on long-term behavior change. So what I noticed in the literature was that there was a lot of work around short-term or one-time behavior change. So things like, I am going to um, create a sign so that people at this park know how to recycle, like put their recycling in the right bin right? Like, like that's important. That's one-time behavior change. It's super important. I'm going to create a, a campaign to get people to, you know, um, put uh, 
compact fluorescent, whatever, the new light bulbs in, right? The, the more energy efficient the light LED bulbs. Ones, yeah. yeah, the LED, I'm going to get people to install LED light bulbs. And that is super important. And there was a lot known about it. And so when I started doing research about international conservation and what the problems were that perhaps psychology could help solve, it became more and more apparent that that one-time behavior change was not going to cut it. When it came to over overseas or really anywhere, um, this longer-term behavior was required, especially if we were talking about sustainable conservation work that perhaps needed to be done by people who knew the area the best. And this came to fruition in an example or a, a case study that I focused on many in East Africa. So I actually ended up in Africa for my dissertation. Nice. Um, nice. Um, <laughs> but instead of Jane Goodalling it, I was studying the Jane Goodalls. I was wow. studying the conservation professionals who lived, worked, and were from, born and raised, in the East African area. So in reality, I was studying the opposite of the Jane Goodalls. <laughs> I was studying the individuals who didn't come from the UK to study conservation in East Africa. I was, I was working with the individuals who were born and raised in that area. And the question I had was what was keeping them going, right? What was keeping them going over time through the many ups and downs that conservation work throws at you? What keeps them going over time? That was my question. What helps build their capacity to continue this work without the Jane Goodalls of the world? So if you think about it, this all started back in the day in, in college when I went to Gandoka and found out white girls do not belong. <laughs> it's not that we don't belong, but it is that we don't belong. Um, yes. and, and, and we should, we need to know that, that that is, if you're going to come and parachute in, just know that, that the reality is you're not going to have much impact. And in fact, they will have much more impact on you. And that's what you're paying for. <laughs> and so there's that, right? And so I ended up working with individuals who are in country who could continue and sustain this work over time. My work was at trying to apply psychology to the development of capacity building interventions. So al along the way, conservation organizations, big ones too, all of them, have realized more and more that these more sustained efforts in country are the sweet spot. They are where it's at. You need to engage, empower, this, this term empowerment kept coming up. You need to empower the individuals in the community, empower the individuals. You know what they didn't talk about? How in God's name you were gonna do that. Like they didn't talk about that at all. And as a psychologist, I was sitting there going, hold on y'all, there's like <laughs> literally like 60 years of research on psychological empowerment hold on, let me go get a definition. We will operationalize the hell out of it. And then we're going to measure it to see if you're doing it right. Mm. That was what my plan was, right? Like, and so I went and I did a lot of participatory research in East Africa to identify whether or not my plan was correct. And it turns out not so much. Uh, psychology and psychological empowerment were important, but the continuation of that behavior over time didn't come from just feeling empowered, this self-efficacy, I can do this. No, 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 no. It required, as I'm sure you can imagine, much more complex emotions and much more complex situations to carry on over time. And so that's what I ended up studying. That's what I ended up focusing on was what were those indicators of long-term 
engagement and conservation, what was it that was going to build the long-term capacity for sustained engagement in conservation behavior? So is this the basis of your five factors of sustained engagement? Is that is that oh, where yeah. this came from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. so what are those? What, what, what did you let <laughs> well, us know? Right, what are they? We buried the lead, <laughs> didn't we? Um, right. So as I mentioned, a lot of the literature at the time was talking a lot about empowerment, but not talking a lot about what that meant or how to get there um, in any operationalized form. And a lot of it was very much like, well, it's this nebulous thing. And wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? And my, my experience was that it wouldn't just be, it's just, it's, it's absolutely essential. It's not a, wouldn't it be nice if these folks were empowered to do this work over time by themselves? It's a, you ain't got no other choice. Like, it's like, stop it. Like that's the long-term success of biodiversity conservation here and abroad really is focused on the people who live there being able to continue that work over time without outside influence, uh, you know, things like this. Um, and so that is is kind of where we, that's where I focused. And so those five factors came out of me digging into the psychological literature, pulling out definitions, putting that stuff together in a survey, giving it to a bunch of East African conservation professionals, and then analyzing the hell out of the data until I could pull themes that actually connected right? The, the indicators that predicted whether or not these professionals continued on in the career over time, continued mm. on to apply skills that they learned uh, to conservation over time, right? It, 10, 20, 15 years out, that was, my, that was my horizon that I was looking at. And so the five factors that we found out were what I am now calling the five factors of sustained engagement. Um, the way I've explained it in the past is as an internal carrot. I think the reason I explain it like that is because for decades, conservation organizations have attempted to motivate human behavior with what could be considered the carrot or the stick method. And so the carrot method is here's your reward for doing conservation behavior. And while that that sometimes it does often work for one time you know, one-time behaviors or short-term behaviors like recycling or put it, you know, screwing in a light bulb, it is less effective for the longer-term engagement that is necessary for biodiversity conservation in the long run, right? Sustained engagement. Um, and so the other side of that is the stick method, which is regulations, right? We are going to regulate the hell out of you if you don't do this. If you don't do this, it's punishment. It's if you don't do this, then this will happen, right? Or at best, it's 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 negative reinforcement, which we can talk about later. But regardless, it doesn't work for long-term behavior change. It just doesn't work. And so there's tons of literature out there about how to really foster this shorter term behavior. But we were focused, I was focused on the the factors that really predicted this longer term. And so those factors I ended up calling in the beginning, the internal carrot, because it was the thing that got people out of bed in the morning, right? The thing that gets you up, gets you going, super excited. You have your own internal carrot, Brooke. I know you do. (laughs) Everybody does. And the question is, what does that look like? for professionals in the conservation field to continue over time or people who are working towards the the mission of conservation in some way or another. 
And um, those five factors uh, include things like meaningful ownership, right? Effective autonomy, group efficacy, community demand, and something called self-regulated understanding. And I can explain each of those if you'd like, but those are the five factors. Yeah, let's go into them. I feel like I'm just like prying open a gold mine of knowledge <laughs> right now. And I'm just, oh, teach me your ways, Kayla. What are these things? Okay, <laughs> okay. so um, here's what I learned. Meaningful ownership and effective autonomy are two that if you are a seasoned professional, these things are gonna come just easy. You're gonna understand them if you work with humans at all, you will understand why this works, okay? The first two indicators of long-term behavior towards conservation are meaningful ownership and effective autonomy. Meaningful ownership, we'll take them one by one, is meaningful ownership is the feeling of whatever you're asking me to do, whether it's come to the table for a shared decision-making process over marine protected areas in Oregon, or it's um, really, uh, asking me to, to do a certain behavior over time, engage in conservation action myself over time. Whatever it is, whatever it is you're asking me to do is either personally or professionally meaningful to me, okay? These are the reasons why we have extension agents at some of these land-grant universities. I mean, they are the ones who know what is personally and professionally meaningful to the people on the ground, right? Which is whose behavior we're, we're largely um, aiming to change so or to foster over time and so that's uh meaningful ownership is is whether or not the the action you're asking them to do is personally or professionally meaningful to them and that can change what i found <laughs> was that is that that can change over time that can um change over time of course but it can also change based on the culture that you're in Right. Mm. So what's oh. personally and professionally meaningful to East Africans perhaps might not be the same thing that is personally or professionally meaningful to United, you know, Americans, North Americans. Right. Um, and that's a pretty easy concept to get on board yeah. with. So the, the trick here, right, the strategy to foster meaningful ownership really is finding out early, early, early what it is about your audience that gets them excited. What is it that is priority for them, either professionally or personally? Okay, that is the trick. That is how you foster that aspect of the five factors. Um, and like I said, a lot of seasoned professionals get that. Like they don't need a psychologist to come and tell them that they should probably make what they're doing important to the people that they're asking to engage. <laughs> they don't They don't need to, me to tell them that. Um, same goes with the second one. The second one is called effective autonomy. And it's essentially the feeling of, I've got this. Like I don't need an expert over my shoulder to tell me what to do. As you can imagine, you're learning something technical skill or you're learning um, something about a new way of doing things. You don't need, you don't want to have to have a compost expert over your shoulder every single second telling you what to do. You want to be able to feel some type of autonomy in your ability to do that thing. And so if you can foster effective autonomy in your participants or the people that you're working with, that will that will likely lead to this longer term engagement. So these two, meaningful ownership and effective autonomy, one, one of the best strategies to increase effective autonomy is to continually ask people and check in with them about where they're at, right? To really, and the way that we do this in trainings is by doing this thing called positive change, where at the end of every day of the training, whatever it is, we 
asked them to identify one thing they really liked about what happened that day and one thing that, the, that they would like to change for the next day. And so it allows them to identify their level of understanding, what's, what their barriers are in the moment, so that the, the, the facilitators of whatever's happening, the decision-making process or the training, can really calibrate in the moment what these folks need to know to not feel like they need an expert over their shoulder every single step of the way. So you get it early, get it during the training, right? Or during the, the decision-making process. So uh, meaningful ownership, effective autonomy. Those are two a lot of people just get off the bat. These last three are not as easy to understand. And a lot of people get them wrong. And I'll start with the first one that a lot of people, a lot of conservation professionals traditionally have gotten wrong. Um, this one is called community demand. And it is essentially the, the idea of our community is in need of. Our community is now better because of the work that you're asking me to do, right? And it's specific because it asks the person who's, who's you know, the indicator is basically the feeling of not just do I feel it, but, but my neighbors have come to me and told me, thank you so much for doing what it is that you're doing. It is a huge part of the, the success of our community, the well-being of our community. That is a high bar, Brooke. It's a really high bar. And you know what it's not? It is the opposite of a conservation professional identifying what they think is necessary in a community. So that's the important piece that a lot of conservation professionals get wrong. They hear something like community demand or community need or whatever it is. And they assume, well, I know what these folks need. Somehow, sometimes the community doesn't even know what they need, right? <laughs> God okay. forbid. I know, right? <laughs> Flip a table, right? Okay. So I mean, this is this is what gets white girls, you know, passport stolen, like this kind of shit. So <laughs> don't do that. Realize that what we're talking about is the type of demand that comes from neighbors talking to neighbors, colleagues talking to colleagues, saying, you know what, we actually really need you to go do. We need you to do this thing. And yeah, sure, it's in line with conservation, or maybe it's not, or whatever it is. The idea is community demand needs to be identified by the community itself, not by you. <laughs> not by you as a professional. It needs to be identified by the actual uh, people that are in the community that whose behavior you're aiming to change. So that's community demand. And that's one, like, you know, whatever, three-fifths of, of, the, of the equation. Um, the other two are quite simple. Um, oh, and we can talk about the strategies that increase community demand the most, but I will just say start by saying like we can go into this later, but the truth is that the strategies that, that foster community demand the most is by, this is going to sound simple, asking, asking Polling. the community, asking the community what it is that they want to learn about, what it is that they want to do that is in line with their community goals themselves. And then you find the sweet spot of what overlaps with conservation goals and their community goals. And you do that, whatever that is. So um, there's a lot of different ways to go about doing that, depending on how well you know the community. And we can talk about that in a bit if you'd like, but we'll just go briefly over what these other two last ones are. So yes. um, the last one's group efficacy is the last, is one of the last ones. And it is the feeling, and I know everybody gets the, the opposite of this all of the time. When you are on a team, 
with people, maybe in school, maybe not, um, where you're like, I feel effective. I'm doing my job, but this guy <laughs> can't pull his shit together and yep. he's ruining everything, right? <laughs> doesn't have to be a guy, usually is. Doesn't have to be a guy. And so it's, that is the, that is the opposite of group efficacy. What we mm. want to feel is that we, we are effective as a group. And the best way to do this is to show people that what their input is that whatever they're giving you, right? Whether it's behavior, whether it's input, whether it's decision-making, whatever it is, that that is in, in an important way, changing the trajectory of the project. So the biggest way to burn people out is to ask them to just keep giving you information, giving you information, giving you information, and then you never tell them where that information goes, how it's being used. If it's being used, they are left to wonder. Um, what's going on with that survey data, Kayla? Like, what's going? Like, what's going on? That's the quickest way to reduce uh, group advocacy. So you want to do the opposite of that: showing folks if they give you information and um, you know input, whatever it is, show them how it's being used to to really direct the trajectory of the project. So that's group efficacy. Um, the final one, and really the coolest one, is called self-regulated understanding. So for decades, we as conservationists have believed that to build the capacity of individuals in country to do biodiversity conservation, you need to teach them two things, <laughs> skills and leadership. Skills and leadership. Skills and leadership, right? So knowledge-based, right? The whole, if they only knew what to do, Brooke, they would do it right? If they only knew what I knew, they would do what I do. <laughs> oh, Lord. So that's so <laughs> wrong. But that's the basis of conservation psychology, is acknowledging that it's not just a knowledge gap that is the problem, that there is so much more to it. And so that is why this is only one of five factors of sustained engagement. Self-regulated understanding says the type of knowledge that you need to be able to continue to do something over time by yourself, not like a charismatic leader there to like cajole you to do it. Not hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of funding, just you to continue to do it over time. You need the type of knowledge where you can identify and then subsequently correct any mistakes that you make while you're doing it. So if there is a, a project that you're working on and you're being taught a specific skill to be a part of that project over time, you wanna be able to identify if you've made a mistake in the process and then be able to correct it. And so I mean, same goes for decision-making process. If you've made a mistake, you offended somebody, you know how to identify that, pull it back and, <laughs> and really fix it, right, yourself. And so if you can do that, then you can do whatever it is, the decision-making process or the application of skill over time, likely more than you could otherwise, if you didn't have that, that level of understanding. And so the best way to foster self-regulated understanding is by allowing for those opportunities to catch your own mistakes in the moment um, when you're being taught the thing or when you're being introduced to the process. So setting it up so that you really are role-playing. What does this look like in the real world? And you find out real quick if you've got it or if you don't. <laughs> Creative you know, engagement processes like, like role-playing or, um, 
or really having an accountability partner with, with each other, right? Coming to trainings in more than just yourself, but with somebody next to you who can be your accountability partner for continuing that behavior over time really helps with increased self-regulated understanding. So that, that's it. That's those, those, those are five. <laughs> those are the wow. five. Mm -hmm. Those are amazing five. I just felt like I learned so much. So, so now, okay, now we have all this knowledge. We have the, these five amazing engagement tools now. We, we now have them. How do we apply them? Let's say that somebody is listening to this right now. Maybe they're getting ready to start their PhD. Maybe they work for a nonprofit and they want to do more in community engagement in wherever this area is that they work. Mm -hmm. And they're like, Kayla, I hear you. That was amazing. How in the world do they take this knowledge now and apply it so that they're making real conservation change? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And I will say that the answer is get yourself a social scientist. I'm not lying. I mean, that is the answer. The, the, the reality is we have gone forwards and backwards on trying to figure out the best way to, to integrate psychological principles into the, you know, and, and apply them to conservation for my goodness, decades now. And I can tell you from personal experience that it, it doesn't, always, it's not always easy. It's not ever easy. And it's sure the hell isn't going to be easy for folks, probably like some of the folks in your audience who were not trained in social science, not trained as psychologists and just are interested. They want to do it, but hell man, they, they don't want to go get a PhD or the doctorate, you know, or the Master's, if you do, Antioch University has a great one in <laughs> conservation psychology. But Plug. if you're not, <laughs> just saying, but if you're not, you know, you can, you can do short-term trainings. Um, you can, you can attempt to do that. But in the long run, you have to ask yourself the return on investment. If you have a social scientist who knows what they're doing on your team, or you can build the capacity of somebody who has that interest that's already on your team to be that expert for you, you're golden, right? And the idea would be not to try to make every single person on your team a social science expert, because that is not a thing. <laughs> but if you want to build your own capacity to do it and, and be kind of like, um, you know, the person in your, in your company or whatever it is, your organization to be this person, you could go get your doctorate, you could go get your master's in it, both of which are offered at Antioch University and other places in conservation psychology. You could also uh, just hire somebody to be on your team that already has that information, already has that, that education. And there's also coaching services that are out there. So in case you're somewhere in between, right? Like you don't want to... <laughs> You don't want to go get a doctorate or a master's in it, but you sure as hell don't want to have to continue to hire consultants again and again and again and again, project after project. There's this middle ground and it's called coaching. And it's actually based on my, the, the model that we use at Antioch is based on my dissertation, five factors is what keeps people going over time. So we, there is a model by which you can build your own capacity to apply psychology to conservation. And we use it and study it at Antioch that's one way of doing it. And so if somebody how, wants to go through that coaching program, mm -hmm. should they contact you? Is it a website? What, what exactly is it? Yeah. 
So definitely um, can contact me. I am at kcranston at antioch.edu. Email me. I love a good conversation. So that's definitely one. The other way to go would be to uh, just Google Conservation Psychology Institute. And that is that will land you at Antioch University's page uh, talking about conservation psychology and everything we have to offer. We do have free webinars, a free webinar series in case you want to just get your beak wet on what this is. You want more of this. You can you can probably get it for free. Well, you can get it for free um, for the webinars that we run out of the conservation psychology institute but if you want to dive deeper then you have your right your option of going for the big degree getting a consultant or doing some coaching mm. oh my gosh yeah i'm definitely be looking into those resources for sure okay. because it wasn't even until my master's and talking to yeah. one of the advisors of the program that i had even heard about this because coming from a very like the exact opposite very mm. strong science background yeah we're like Human emotions, don't even think about it because we need science. <laughs> right, we right. Need science. And then going into the field, I'm like, so everything I learned was relevant, but not applicable. Mm-hmm. Because who cares if I understand exactly how this one species of something evolved or like yeah. why this adaptation came to be? Does it actually matter in the big realm of things? Not really, because that doesn't <laughs> Yeah. Because it's going to disappear very soon. So right. it doesn't matter if I understand how it works biologically. Right. So I love this concept. And that's why I'm so glad to sit down and chat with you about it. Because I, I have way more to learn myself. But I'm a scientist. And so that is why I need to learn more about this too. And why I recommend anybody else listening, especially if you want to make a different uh, – or maybe your project's stalling. And you're like, I have mm. no – an idea what to do now that is like, usually what, is what brings people to us and mm. what sells it for them the idea of applying conservation psychology is because most of them are like you brooke they are trained as physical or or biological scientists and or zoologists or some kind of ology that is you know science-based scientific method and they see conservation psychology for what it is it is the scientific study of human behavior, just like conservation biology is the scientific study of animal behavior in the realm of like how to go towards the mission of conservation. Same thing. That's how you can look at it. And so when we frame it like that, scientists become all of a sudden very okay with what we're doing (laughs) because scientific method, right? Because scientific (laughs) method, we're not making shit up. We have graphs and shit. You know what I mean? Like we don't, we don't have to we're using it, it's real. <laughs> we're using we're using the same methods we believe in post positivism sorry we believe <laughs> in science like it's a it's a it's a thing so that is um, that's that's i think what gets at least the higher ups in these organizations that i'm working with on board is that they are they are scientists um, and they understand the importance of following a very strategic and intentional approach to studying these things and really engaging and, and implementing evidence-based strategies. Like that is their game, right? Like you don't go about trying to conserve endangered species without evidence-based strategies. You also don't go about trying to change the behavior of humans without evidence-based strategies. You just don't, right? Like that's, that's usually the sell. Oh, that's awesome. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And like, I'm so sold. I'm so on board. And I hope that anybody else like 
if you're <laughs> to that point, this probably is the way to look yeah. next. Or if you haven't even started, look into this too. Like as you're designing whatever project it is that you are working on, like definitely. Yeah. Definitely yeah. Do this. That's awesome. So the next thing I would really love to chat about and just having travel around the world a lot and also knowing a lot of people that have traveled to do PhDs and different cultures that are not their own. I would love to, I would love to ask you this question, answer it how you would like. Um, so like how do conservationists foster behavior change in cultures that are not their own? And should these methods change if they are in their own culture? What yeah. do you think about that? It's, it's such a good question, Brooke. And I'll say my answer to this is that, of course, something that you might, that you might just gather from your own personal experiences that of course, um, conservationists who are interested in fostering behavior change in a culture that is not their own will likely need to employ different methods, right? Than the, than they would if they were attempting to foster behavior change in their own culture. Um, so what those methods are largely is dependent on the culture, but perhaps not in the way that you might assume. So there are some universals across culture, right? Psychologists love universals. <laughs> we love things to be the same across cultures. Gotta love a psychologist. Um, <laughs> and there are some universals uh, across the culture. And that's where the five factors of sustained engagement come into play. And I'm an evaluator, right? So I, by training, and so I focus on the goals of your program first before we suggest methods. And so if, for instance, long-term motivation to perform a behavior iteratively or over a time, like composting at home or coming to the table many times over the course of a three-year co-design project is your goal, like if that is your goal, that long-term behavior, you need to aim for the five factors. And the good news is, is that the five factors are universal across cultures. My research mm. focused on a group in East Africa, North America, England, what they mean is universal, but how they show up in behavior and how they can be fostered does change based on culture. So an example, if I wanna foster, for instance, community demand, right? Which is the, one of the most important five factors of sustained engagement in my fellow staff, say I'm at an organization, right? And I want to, to foster this community demand in my fellow staff because they need to help me continue this project over time too. It's not just me. I can't do it by my own, by myself, right? So I need to foster these five factors in my fellow staff at the conservation organization, community demand being one of them. I may already know just from my own personal experience as one of these staff members, what would make the project useful or relevant to the staff, right? So you can measure this aspect by asking your fellow staff like, how have you know how has this project been important to the well-being of the organization or has it or will it like how will this project whatever i'm asking them to do be super duper important to either the the community as a whole or the organization's mission so essentially you go with what you've heard people from people like you right you go with what you've heard from people like you um, along the way so it's essentially the same approach with other cultures or populations, but 
Instead, you have to listen a little differently. So whereas in the previous example where they're very much like you, maybe they're white girls from Arizona too, don't have to be from Arizona, but maybe they're, you know, <laughs> um, people like you and me, Brooke, right? And if that's the case and you spend time with them long enough, you probably can listen in, in a myriad of ways. Um, however, when it's, when it's different culture, different population, you really have to listen differently and more intentionally in ways that you've never had to before, likely. Um, and so what I mean by that is when I started working with a conservation organization um, in 2017, 18, 18, um, and they asked me, okay, well, we're gonna go into a community in Ferguson, Missouri, and we want you to tell us what is going to make our programming relevant and useful. <laughs> to the people in Ferguson, Missouri, first move, identify that you were a white girl from Arizona or whatever you are. If you are not from Ferguson, Missouri, and somebody's asking you <laughs> to help them make their programming relevant to people in Ferguson, Missouri, you need to go to Ferguson, Missouri, and you need to ask the people that live there and have been born and raised in that area to help you with that. However, there are a lot of different ways that this can go wrong and has gone wrong in the long term so many times, right? So many. Conservation, so many times. Conservation organizations are quite literally notorious for coming in and out of communities, uh, you know, historically disenfranchised communities, asking for input, taking that input, and then getting the heck out of there. So there is a very specific strategy called co-design um, that you can use to really help develop that community demand as well as the other four factors of sustained engagement that has been proven by by science to work and you should use that and it's going to take a long time especially if your institution has not had very much success in the past engaging that population so if you're if you don't have a history of knowing how to talk or listen to this this population you need to do a co-design process and it's going to take time, energy, resources. The good news is there's a heck of a lot of funding out there right now for it. So keep that in mind. But that's that's what I would suggest um, about methods in your own culture and then outside of your culture. So what did you do when you got to Ferguson, Missouri? Oh, sorry. Am I bearing the lead again? <laughs> oh. So, I mean, it's a three year, it was a three year process and uh, it's the same process that I'm implementing at the three zoos that I'm working, four zoos that I'm working with now across the United States. But it's a three year process where you're essentially starting by asking what assets already exist in the community. I think this is where we go wrong a lot is when we as conservation organizations come into a community and ask, what do you need? What do you lack? Where's the gap? Like it's, it's horrible, right? Like don't do that, especially in a community that has been historically disenfranchised. The quickest way to shut down com communication is by asking them where the gap is. You know, like just don't do that. That's so not a good insulting. idea. It's so insulting. It is so, like, imagine somebody coming to your back door and going, what do you lack? Like, no, stop it, no. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, don't do that. Come at it from an asset-based approach, which is the opposite of a deficit-based approach, which basically says, we know, y'all got it. Like to a certain extent, you don't need a damn zoo. You don't need a giraffe in your life. Like you really don't. You, you can handle things on your own. And 
we would like to be your neighbors. We would like to be <laughs> a, a useful, relevant part of this community, just like you. What's already working well in your community? Where do you want to be in five to 10 years in your community goals? And how can we, once you've identified where they're at, point A, where they want to be, point B, how can we work together to get from point A to point B? That takes a year, Brooke. It did take a year in Ferguson because of all of that. And in the meanwhile, we, one of the most essential pieces is hiring staff to be at our table every single day, full time, four of them, in fact, from the community that we are attempting to engage. So people mm. who are born and raised in the Ferguson area to show us, to help us, to guide us, to figure out how to listen to their fellow community members, because we, the, we sure the hell didn't know even though the, the institution was very well known, um, it was not seen as something that was relevant. At least the educational program was not seen as something that was relevant to lower income areas, or lower income populations. So uh, that's what we did. We started the co-design process, which began with a year of, of listening, essentially, <laughs> um, and moved into a second year of strategic development of, of of programming with the partners that we developed relationships with in the first year. And then the third phase is about pilot testing. So not assuming you get it right and identifying what the indicators that the community has, has helped you focus on, have, have set for you, the standards that the community has set for you and holding your programming up to those standards and reflecting back to the community. This is what we found. This is what you said you wanted. This is what we did. This is what we found and how it how it affected these indicators you said were important. What do you want us to do? If there are scientists in the in the audience, this is very similar to an adaptive management approach. And you infiltrate the five factors into that. You infuse the five factors into that management approach. And that's how you get co-design. And so if anybody's interested, let me know because I could talk for decades about this approach. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. That sounds amazing. I feel like we need to have like a whole series with Kayla. Like series with Kayla. Phase one or episode one. Episode Here's one. This and then we, can go from there. we can go from there. But right. yeah. So how did you and Kathy Yoon meet? <laughs> oh God. You're gonna love the story. Well, she's gonna love the story because I don't so this is um this is a stress interesting. So Kathy Yoon and I how did we meet first? I I was just entering the, the zoo world officially. So right, I get my doctorate. Carol introduces me to all these zoo professionals. And then I go do a postdoc at Oregon State University working on burnout in fishermen who are asked to be in long-term decision-making processes with marine protected areas. And, uh, and then, of course, Trump comes along. And all of our funding was completely out, you know, gone because EPA was gone. And so um, my boss at postdoc looked at me and said, could you get a job like maybe somewhere else? And, and so I did. Um, I looked, I used, you know, the, the connections I had through Carol to get a job at the St. Louis Zoo. And while I was there, I was conservation education researcher. My job was to make darn sure that the education programs that they had there at the zoo were having the, the impact that they said they wanted to have on 
the participants in those education programs. Specifically, what brought me to Cathayoon was I was working on a nature preschool project. So our zoo had a huge nature preschool program that was filled with Yes, mostly higher income white kids, I'll be honest, but it was a great laboratory for what increases, you know, certain um, behaviors in that young of an age, right, preschoolers. And so the, the buzzword around the zoo world right now is empathy. Empathy this, empathy that, right? We've got to increase empathy. God forbid we don't have empathy. So we're going to, we're going to create empathy. That's what's happening. And so I was tasked with determining whether or not or in, to what degree the nature preschool was increasing empathy and moral reasoning in preschoolers. <laughs> so that was my dream job. I'm like, I'm a psychologist. <laughs> let, me go, just, let me go study the hell out of children. And so that's what we did. And in doing so, I was pushed towards Kathleen's work on empathy. And she had, you know, a couple of years prior worked with this group of zoos in the Pacific Northwest to create a toolkit of how to increase empathy in the zoo setting. And then subsequently how to measure that change, which is what I was interested in, mm. right? And so I did what any good scientist would do. I dug into her literature. I pulled the instrument. I started trying to use it and it did not work. It was it was not working. And I kind of knew why, um, because it was not intended for preschoolers. Mm. But what that led led to was a conversation with Kathayoon where I, God bless her, I swear to God, our first <laughs> conversation with, was me like drilling her on like the science, like, I don't even know what it was. It was like, tell me about the factor analysis that you went through to get to this. Cause I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a psychometrician, right? I'm like, tell me the details. How did you do this? What does this, and how are you, and what, and why doesn't it work with, you know, whatever. So that's how I met Kathy M. And she was uh, gracious enough to have that conversation with me. And, and then later I found out that uh, my advisor, uh, the day before she passed actually, made a couple of phone calls, uh, two of which were to, one was to me and one was to Kathy M. So remember, I told you Carol's area of interest in research with it was empathy. So Katha Yoon's the up and coming expert on empathy in the world of conservation. She just is. And Carol knew that. And she wanted to support Katha Yoon's continued work, continued scholarship and continued application of that work in the zoo world. And um, so when, when Carol called me, the day before she passed, God bless her. <laughs> what a rock star, right? You're on your deathbed and you're like, I'm now going to call people to make sure that the legacy of my field continues after I'm gone. And um, that is exactly what happened. And she called me and said, you know, I need you to get together with Kathy Yoon and Johnny Frazier, another one of her mentees. And I need you all to move it forward, move the field forward. And so all of a sudden, Kathayun and I got much closer <laughs> because we were like one of three, you know, two of three that had gotten that specific phone call. And so that's exactly kind of what leads us to where I am now. And, and uh, now Kathayun is research faculty at Antioch University, New England, which is really exciting. So we get to work together even more closely now. Well, let's go into that. So, okay, okay. okay so... <laughs> Uh, Carol, very sadly, you know, 
rest, rest I hope she's resting and watching you guys and be like, oh my god, it is like but so she she has passed on. So there's this big hole that's left in Conservation Psychology Institute. So so what happens from there? Um, you're still a part of the organization. Have you taken on those big shoes? And Kathy Yoon has now come over. So so what mm-hmm. do you do now? And also, what does Kathy Yoon do? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think, and I said it most succinctly. I think when we when we were just starting to to really shape the idea of what this would look like. And I'll say it again, which is that the most effective way that we can really honor Carol's legacy is to acknowledge early and often that there is no damn way one of us could continue this by ourselves over time. There's just no way. Um, She was too dynamic. She was like, she knew herself the importance of the network of individuals who were doing this work. Because as bright as Kathayun is, and as great as you know our research might be here, we are only two people, <laughs> right? And there is so much that needs to be done. And so the building of the network became my focus. And the building of the conservation psychology network and legacy at Antioch continues and is now growing which is pretty exciting. So she is coming on to help mentor some of the students that are coming on to learn from us and to direct some of their research if they're interested in empathy. So if you are interested in empathy (laughs) research and you want to conservation psychology, Antioch's your jam, connect with us. uh, And Kathleen would potentially be the person that would would help you the most. Um, So she's research faculty. My position is director of conservation psychology strategy and integration because brevity is not our thing and essentially (laughs) what that means is that under the conservation psychology institute which is run by a colleague of mine called uh abby abrash walton she's amazing and she continued the legacy after carol left and before i came back so that is what abby did and abby was amazing at that job and now she is overseeing the institute which includes kathayun myself uh, a colleague of ours called Dr. Uh, Megan Gukian. So Dr. A. Barish Walton, uh, Gukian, Kathayun, uh, and then myself as kind of the, the folks at the helm at the Conservation Psychology Institute. We as a, as a network, as a, as a group, run different aspects of this, right? So uh, Dr. Gukian really works with our masters and doctoral students, getting their research up to par to make sure that it it really does contribute to our field in meaningful ways. Um, Kathayun's killing it with the application game, going out there and really translating that work, specifically in empathy, back into the zoo world. And my job is to make the connection between the, both of them. To, to take what's being what's being created, knowledge-based stuff out of out of research, new research, innovative principles coming out of conservation psychology, and connecting it to the real-world problems that conservationists are having in this really unique time that we are in. Uh-huh. <laughs> Where yes, my drink's gone. Right, <laughs> exactly. Like holy crap, there are so many different things now. That, that weren't even present, you know, a year ago that no. need to be looked at. And so this connection between humans and nature, I think if I've learned anything throughout the COVID world, you know, is that 
we are inextricably linked. And if you try to do one without the other, I wish you the best of luck, but it yeah. will not work long-term. And so that's where my research right now is focused, is on that connection between human well-being and community well-being and uh, conservation. And how do you connect those two to create long-term solutions? Mm, wow. Well, as that develops, we'll have to keep having you come on to just yes, keep right. us updated as your research continues. And, and oh my gosh, yeah, because I, I want to know. I want to know what you're finding, what you're discovering, what your research is telling you, what new things those of us in the field should be doing or looking at things and analyzing stuff in a different way and, and how we're approaching projects and stuff. So I, the way that you've explained all of this is like the lens that we need to be looking at this stuff in. And so, yeah, I, you just need to teach us your ways. Just keep teaching <laughs> us your ways. You know, I am, uh, I'm definitely not, <laughs> just me is not going to be enough, but I will tell you there is quite the strong network out there that, that does have the expertise that this world needs. And my, I feel like my job is amplifying their voices, honestly, throughout, um, a lot of different avenues. And so I'm very grateful for the opportunity to talk with you about it and, and, and maybe, uh, share it with, with some new audiences. Yeah. Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit. Mm -hmm. And let's go back to you for a second. So you've had a lot of highs and a lot of lows, I, I would imagine, throughout your career. <laughs> what would you say has been the most difficult thing that you've had to get over or like your biggest struggle that you've had to overcome in your journey? Yeah. <laughs> Is it too glib to say the patriarchy? Like, can we... <laughs> You can say whatever you want, honey. I, mean, I don't mean to be glib or, or, you know, um, too brief, but uh, the patriarchy, misogyny, like I don't even know where to begin. But the truth is, in the world of conservation, colonialistic approaches to pretty much anything are, are, are there, are, are real systemic issues that... Um, quite honestly, psychology can't touch are the things that have been the biggest struggle in my journey. And so, for instance, the strategies that my work suggests, usually, right, we do all this science, we have these strategies, they're evidence-based, we put them in a nice little package, we start to try to work with an institution to implement them. The strategies that my work suggests usually are not business as usual. The truth if you will, that the research that we do unveils is not always what the professionals who hired me want to believe is true about what their programs are doing or if their programs are doing. For instance, nobody wants to hear that the, for instance, the capacity building project that they poured millions of dollars into is in fact not impacting long-term behavior change of their intended audience. Right? Like nobody wants to hear, nobody wants to hear that, even if they hire you to, to tell them whether or not that's true. Um, and in the past, they've been able to say, you know, well, you can't really measure that objectively, or it takes too long to measure our long-term impact, right? So sure, that's what we're doing. But with the measurement tools that, that I've created, that the field of conservation psychology has created in general, you can measure it directly. In the here and now, you don't have to wait to find out if what you're doing now is going to affect long-term behavior. You don't. 
you figure out the psychometrics to measure the hell out of it, and then you do. And so <laughs> you can measure it in the here and now. And when you do, I can't promise you that what you're going to find is what you're going to like, right? Mm. What I can promise, however, is that knowledge is power, if you will. Um, and the sooner that you know how your program is impacting these essential factors of sustained engagement, for instance, the quicker you can be on, like I said, an evidence-based path towards more efficient conservation work. That's essentially what we're offering, right? So when you ask me what my biggest struggle in my journey has been, I will be honest with you that it has been speaking truth to power. It's been the biggest struggle. I'm lucky enough to have amazing colleagues at AZA and Antioch and other places who help me smooth the edges, right? Like reel me in <laughs> when, when what I'm finding makes me wanna flip a damn table. Like they help me frame the truth that we're finding in a way that can be heard and acted upon by the decision makers. So I have found to like the best way to get over that struggle, if you will, is to choose the right partners to help me have that truth heard by decision makers who can actually change the systems that keep us all in the place where we're at, right? So um, yeah, that's that's kind of the struggle and how I've how I've attempted and am finding success in in working around it. Mm. And that sounds like an ongoing one for. Oh, oh, honey, <laughs> we, I got stories. Yeah, it's, it's really intense out there, especially when you connect conservation work to the work of anti-racism or the work of any kind of community well-being project. Immediately, you are in unknown territory with conservation organizations. There, you really are, because that's just not in their mission, right? And it, it, um, but they want to do it, right? So it's um, it's holding them uh, to their word and and helping them build that integrity and in what they say they want to do. Mm. Wow, yeah, that sounds difficult <laughs> to say the least. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, all of these subjects are touchy subjects. They yeah. all are. But that is, but we have to. We have to. Yeah push against these barriers or these standards, like norms, Yeah. if any change is going to be done, because whatever the standard is now, whatever the norm is now is not working. Such a good point. And I recently was working with a huge, like really well-known conservation organization, uh, coaching them on how to implement something called co-design, which is one of the processes that the five factors have shown to work to lead to this long-term behavior change, right? So they're implementing this. And first couple calls I get on are with these three uh, colleagues, right? They all work at this organization and one, and they're all biologists, specifically bio, like animal biologists in the conservation biologists in the field. And um, they live in a particular part of the United States where guns are prevalent, but not, you know, uh, but like rifles and uh, large guns. And so they're specifically on the project that they were working on, um, we're trying to persuade people not to shoot specific wildlife that would then impact endangered species, right? That was their aim. And, <laughs> and it just so happened that I had lived in this part of the country for 
five years. So, and my, my sister owns a ranch there. Like it's a whole thing, right? So this person comes in and is like, you know what? I hear you saying long-term behavior change. I hear you saying it's important to include the humans in the decision-making process, but from the perspective of said endangered species, fuck that. (laughs) I don't want to do that. We don't have time for that. And like, first of all, I don't even know why I'm here. This is ridiculous. I need to go and and do more conservation work, right? And so, (laughs) so I was grateful for her input and at the end of the call, asked her to stay on to have a conversation with me about about it. And I said, tell me how, how your approach is working out for you so far. And she- Mic drop, <laughs> well, mic, the mic drop. drop. The mic drop was really me at that moment, sharing with her that I, I had lived in the area that she was working for many years. And I remember seeing the signs that her organization put up that said no, no hunting, no shooting, yada, yada. And I also remember that those signs were full of bullet holes. So is it working out for you? Is it not? (laughs) And the answer is not. It's just not. I mean, not long-term, not if what you're asking for is a repetitive behavior that has to happen over time. And so it's exactly to your point. It is what we need. um, And it's also really hard because it's very different than what we thought we needed. It's new. I mean, yeah. we're all we're all resistant to new. <laughs> I mean, right. the field of conservation. Everyone was just like, "What the fuck are you talking about? What right. what is that?" You know. Like, <laughs> but now it's like, okay, everybody now knows this term. So now we just right. now we just need to take it to another level. It's like, okay, we all love animals. That's why we're in this field. Oh, it's not the animals; it's the people. Right. Oh, well, okay. She- <laughs> <laughs> so now we're to this point. Right. Okay, and so then yeah. that is where now all of your work comes in. And where we'll hopefully start to make some real change as more and more people get trained in what you know. Yes. And please, God, I hope there's more of us because my goodness. I mean, I I do have hope. We started with two students at Antioch when I started a year and a half ago there. And now we have 13. Wow. Um, And so we're just growing over time and, and adding experts along the way to help guide the ship because God knows me and like two other people just can't do it. Right. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, yeah, I'm hopeful. I am hopeful. So what are you most proud of on the opposite end? On the opposite end? Um, well, quite honestly, I mean, I am, I am proud of the co-design project, uh, that I'm working on with, with zoos across the United States right now. So the co-design process, I told you that I was working with the big conservation organization it's the same process that I'm implementing in zoos across the United States right now. Three specifically that I'm working with right now um, and bringing on a fourth uh, in November. And it's a three-year project and it comes with you know, funding that helps support the implementation of psychological principles into conservation at the zoo in a way that helps the zoo remain relevant in their community. So it's a win-win-win. And I am super proud of how well that is going, how well it's being received, um, and how much it's growing already, which is super exciting. So that is one thing that I think I'm proud of in the moment. I would say just in general, though, I'm most proud of the students at Antioch. I mean, every single day, I am deeply impressed by their ability to take what 
basically do what everybody does as they come into graduate school. You take what's already known and then you go next level. You start asking those more critical questions like, okay, Kayla, well, that's great. Meaningful ownership and effective autonomy and group efficacy might be three of the things that you implement to get long-term behavior change. But when you do, sometimes that conflicts with community demand or this other thing. So let's look at that. Let's look at exactly why that happened. Like, shit, man, do it. Like, I get it <laughs> because I don't have time to be looking at all of the different aspects as critically as they need to be looked at. So I'm deeply impressed and deeply proud of um, my students right now. Wow, that's awesome. And yeah. for anyone listening, I mean, we're mm -hmm. all at least trained or not trained conservationists, I would say most of the people that yeah. listen to this, what advice do you have for anybody? You have a moment. What would you like to tell them? <laughs> don't stop. I mean, I really, it, don't stop. I understand that right now where we're at is really a difficult place um, to be, especially in the midst of a resurgence of COVID um, in the midst of a, a continued denigration of funding for conservation, don't stop, get creative. That's what I would suggest. Um, and so what I mean by that, and what I explain in a webinar I've done on the, the co-design process, the five principles in co-design, is that right now, right now especially, with as, as bleak as it is out there, especially in the funding world, you do have to get creative with funding. So things like AmeriCorps funding, which is the funder that funds um, a lot of the work that I do, um, IMLS, I mean, you know, NSF, ASL, stuff like that. Yes, very important. And what they're looking for now more than ever is the intersection of human well being and conservation. They just are. And so if you can get creative and find a way to connect what you're doing in conservation to human well being, it's a gold mine. It's, believe me, it's a gold <laughs> mine. <laughs> we are finding every day more and more funding for this type of work. And especially if you can prove that it's based in science and that it's done with integrity, that is what they care the most about. And that you're working with your community to develop it. Not by yourself, not in a silo. You've got partners and that takes skills. That takes, that takes psychology skills <laughs> to be able to do. <laughs> People skills, everybody. People skills, <laughs> folks. People skills. Read your books. Uh, <laughs> right. How treat people with how you want to be treated. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. So, how can someone get a hold of you? Let's say they're super. They love everything. They like Kayla. I need all the right. things. Right. What is all the ways? I know sure. you already given your email, but if you want to repeat it, or if there's another way that you also prefer. Yeah. Sure. Um, so again, the email is kcranston at antioch.edu. So C-R-A-N-S-T-O-N. Um, the other way to get a hold or just take a look at what work uh, we're up to is you can actually go to my website. It's kaylacranston.com and look at the research that uh, I've done in the past and get a sense of where I'm at now. The other way, if you're really interested in the co-design process or want to become a partner, like I said, it's a growing project. So if you really are, if you're at an institution that you think, you know, might, 
might benefit from learning how to work with the community as opposed to for the community. <laughs> that is something that um, we are working on right now, implementing um, psychological principles into how to do that to really reach goals that are equal parts important for conservation and for human well-being. So that's what we're doing now. If you're interested, please reach out. You can also just straight up Google five principles of co-design and a webinar will pop up. So you can just, you can, that's another free uh, resource if you're interested. Awesome. Well, Kayla, this has been amazing. I know I learned so much and I hope that everybody listening did. And again, I cannot wait to get this out there in the world. Yeah. Thank you so much, Brooke. I really appreciate all of your incredibly important questions and, and just really opening this up to a new audience. I really do appreciate that. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Wow. Didn't you just learn so much from Kayla? For this week's question, I would love to ask you all this. Which of Kayla's five factors of sustained engagement surprised you the most? Can you think of ways to apply conservation psychology to your work? Let me know in the Rewildologist Facebook group, on Instagram at Rewildology, or at the website Rewildology.com. Any of them? Can't wait to hear from you. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at Rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>